I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Marisa Whitehall. Marisa is Executive Director of Fontenelle Forest, a non-profit nature center, Raptor Woodland Refuge and Recovery Center, and a 2,000-acre forested green space bordering the Missouri River in the Omaha metro area. Marisa, a sixth-generation Nebraskan, has over 20 years of nonprofit leadership experience, including nine as a nationally touring artist and arts manager. After gaining a degree in political science, Marisa went on to earn an executive master's degree in nonprofit leadership from Seattle University. As a consultant and trainer, she has advised numerous nonprofit organizations seeking to create capacity and achieve organizational goals. Welcome to the show, Marisa. Hello, Stuart. It's great to be here. <laughs> so tell me about Fontenelle Forest. Wow, Fontenelle Forest is amazing. So you know that I've just come back from 20 years living in Seattle, um, come back home to be the executive director at Fontenelle Forest. And one of the things that's really amazing to me is how much of a resource it is for this community, um, how vast the holdings and the activities of the organization are. Um, even compared to uh, nature centers and similar organizations across the country, this is just an incredible organization doing incredible work. So how would you paint that picture of Fontenelle Forest? How would you describe it so people could get this, this sense of what it is to be at Fontenelle Forest? Well, I know that when a lot of people think about Fontenelle Forest, they think about hiking trails and they think about um, wild animals wandering the woods and the opportunity to spot a deer or spot a wild turkey. Um, they think about uh, the birds that fly through the different songs, um, just the, the different plumage that you can see when you walk through the forest at Fontenelle Forest. Um, in fact, it's an important birding area. And so there are over 250 different species of migratory birds that uh, come through that area. So it's a very, very popular area for birding. I think that a lot of people also think a lot about the conservation and the restoration work that we do to restore the healthy ecological balance of Fontenelle Forest. One of the things I don't think a lot of people remember is that as human beings, we're animals too. And all of us have a relationship and a deep core fundamental longing and connection to nature. And in that sense, even if you're not a hiker, if you're not a birder, if you're not an environmentalist or ecologist per se, I think that when you visit Fontenelle Forest, there is a real primitive part of who we naturally are as human beings that finds its connection in the natural world. And it's very difficult to articulate that for every individual, but it's fundamentally and very true an experience that we have when we walk into the natural world. So I love that idea that we are, we're just animals. I'm getting the sense from what you're saying that we have maybe not lost touch with that, but we have potentially civilized out some of those aspects that really are true to the human condition. 
And maybe I'm making a leap here by saying that what you're also describing is that Fontenelle Forest offers us an opportunity to reacquaint ourselves with something maybe a little more authentic to who we are as a, a primitive animal species, but in ways that we're not talking Lord of the Flies, obviously. This, this, this is... <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> are you describing this ability for Fontenelle Forest to, to reacquaint people with something that's a little deeper within themselves? Yeah, I absolutely do. I like to, I like to think of Fontenelle Forest um, and particularly urban nature centers. Right, um, a lot of us have the opportunity to uh, get out of the city, to go to experience state um, wildlands, to experience federal wildlands. Um, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that there are many members of our community that do not necessarily have access or resources to get out of the city. And so having an urban nature center, especially one with um, property holdings as expansive as Fontenelle Forest, having 1,400 acres right outside of Omaha in the city of Bellevue. It's just 10 minutes drive from downtown Omaha. And then also having a 600-acre property just out by NP Dodge Park and Hummel Park. That's Neil Woods Nature Center. Um, to have both of those properties have close access to that as urban people is really important. I like to think of urban nature centers as places that allow us to connect with nature to connect with ourselves, and also to connect with others. How is it possible in Fontenelle Forest to immerse yourself in this natural world you're describing and to forget that 10 minutes ago you were in an urban environment that is replete with concrete and vehicles and traffic and, and the mass of humanity? Is it possible and how is it possible to disconnect and associate yourself with the natural world? I think it just happens, Stuart. I think it just happens. I don't think that there is any mental, psychological exercise. There's no intentional exertion of will that's necessary to gain that experience of disconnection. It's really just a simple matter of getting out into the woods. Um, because I think that once you get out into a natural environment, it does reconnect, it reawakens that part of you that is not necessarily forgotten, but not existing in an environment on a regular basis that's conducive. We've built these incredible societies, these incredible structures that protect us from the elements and make our lives very, very comfortable. And they are also the same as their barriers from the wind and the cold and the rain and the snow, they're barriers for that connection. So once you remove that barrier, once you step out into nature, which just a simple visit to Fontenelle Forest allows you to do, then that barrier is removed and that freedom that, as I said, is a fundamental part of who we are as human beings, it, um, it's awakened. And it's magical, I think. I think it's really magical for people because if they're not accustomed to getting out into the natural world, um, 
I think they can be a little bit surprised themselves. And uh, some of the some of the reflections that people have is, wow, I didn't think this was going to be so cool, but it was really cool after all. You know, <laughs> simple things like that. Um, I should come here more often or I don't know why I haven't been back for such a long time. Um, it's, it's really simple. And that's the beauty of it. How do you encourage people that perhaps have a little familiarity with the natural world to understand that it is something they're missing and only realize that when they are immersed within it? Well, first of all, I don't believe in um, external motivation. There's only internal motivation. And so I think that really the key for Fontenelle Forest and, and other organizations similar to Fontenelle Forest is to try to understand what's important to the people that we're trying to reach and then to determine how we can communicate our message to those people in a way that it ties into or relates to what is important to them. If people are not visiting Fontenelle Forest and we say, oh, you should come because it's really beautiful and there's lots of hiking trails and the birds are amazing and the work we're doing to preserve and restore this ecosystem is very, very important. If they don't already feel those things are important, telling them that is not necessarily going to make them think it's important. But I know that in the city of Omaha and throughout the state of Nebraska, there's a very strong initiative that's focused on making our city and our state the number one healthiest city and state in the entire country. There are lots of concerns about diabetes, about hypertension, about uh, blood pressure, about heart disease um, that are impacting our community. Um, you know, the rate of um, obesity in childhood is, um, it's, it's tragic. And nature has the opportunity and an, an engagement of people who um, are concerned about these particular health impacts. They have the opportunity to be healed by experiencing nature walking on our trails, good for their physical uh, and psychological health and well-being. So those are that's an example. Um, I think it's really about trying to understand what's important to the community. And I used one specific example, the example of physical health. But there are academics and researchers around the country that for over four decades have really been looking closely at a broad spectrum of benefits that experiences in nature provide. And those benefits range from mental health, emotional health, physical health, um, community connectiveness and cohesion, a reduction of uh, aggression and violence. Um, you know, there are positive economic benefits that green spaces bring, not to mention um, the overall health benefits that an incredible tree canopy provides to our entire city. By virtue of having 2,000 acres of tree canopy and the sequestration of carbon that happens with that tree canopy, the air that we're all breathing is better air, and that contributes to an overall better community. You talked about internal motivations. 
So what are some of the internal motivations that you've learned have drawn people to to the natural world? Well, I talked to you a little bit about um, this story that we normally tell about the land, about our trails and about animals. And those are all very, very, very important stories. They're very important stories. Did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Those are important stories. Those are important stories. I think that to get to that internal motivation to answer your question, we have to be creative as an organization about uh, how we tell our stories. And so, um, and the opportunities that we offer to potentially get at the internal motivation of uh, sectors of our community um, with different interests. So, for example, uh, we have just implemented at Fontenelle Forest at the end of 2016, uh, we developed a rotating art series. And so as you enter Fontenelle Forest 25,000 uh, square foot nature center, you will come upon the Bayright Gallery. And we've had three art exhibits thus far. Uh, currently, we are exhibiting Matika Wilbur, who is an indigenous photographer from the Pacific Northwest. And she has, for the past five years, been traveling around the United States in a Volkswagen Vanagon uh, with her camera and an assistant traveling and visiting all 562 federally recognized indigenous tribes and taking photographs of indigenous people who are telling the stories about their connection and their relationship um, and their perspective of the sacredness of land. And it's a beautiful exhibit. Coming up next, and actually underway right now, will be an exhibit by Wadi White. And Wadi has been working with Omaha poets who have um, written poems about nature. And Wadi is now carving excerpts of those poems. He worked very closely with our stewardship team and to identify uh, trees, dead trees, and fallen logs on our property right along our ADA accessible boardwalk that would be appropriate for these kinds of carvings. Um, But he's carving excerpts from these poems and then photographs of the carvings as well as the full poems written by these Omaha artists will be exhibited in the Bayright Gallery. So people that are interested in upcycling and recycled materials have something to come out to. People who are interested in different cultural perspectives and particularly, you know, perspectives of minority communities and their relationship to nature or just photography have something to come out to. And now we've got people who are interested in potentially in the literary arts uh, to come out and people that are interested in environmental arts. So we're looking for different ways through our programming um, and the opportunities that we offer to people to maybe touch on something that's of interest to them Once we get them to the property, forget about it. That's where nature does its magic. Once we are able to get them to the property, then that barrier is removed and nature can just speak to their human soul. There are very, very important things to learn about nature. And I don't want to undervalue that. But that being the case... For the layperson, for the vast majority of us that will not um, or are not interested 
in studying nature, there's still the ability and the power that nature has to communicate with our human spirits. you to this kind of work, to this kind of natural world? Well, I'm a human being. (laughs) And so there's a natural (laughs) connection that I have to nature. You know, I'm from Nebraska. I grew up um, here in Nebraska, and I come from a family of hunters. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about at Fontenelle Forest is even within the current community of people that love nature, the way nature lovers engage in the natural world is very diverse. Just moving back recently from the Pacific Northwest, talking about my hunting heritage was not very popular. (laughs) But it's a real way to respect, engage with nature. And hunters, in fact, are are, um, strong conservationists. Um, And that's not something that people know a lot about the hunting community and the hunting culture. Um, My grandfather and my mom, I remember, you know, going out and we'd go fishing and that sort of thing. And all the kids, when I was growing up, we'd help clean whatever the catch was or whatever came in from the hunt. And so, you know, (laughs) pulling out rabbit guts and... (laughs) All the stinky stuff, it's just been a normal part of my life. And it was subconscious. Um, When I got a little bit older in college, you know, moved out of my parents' home, without thinking about it really, um, really only in retrospect did I become aware that I would seek solace in our city's natural spaces. My favorite place to go to was Hummel Park. And I remember there, I don't know if it's still there, but there was an area that people referred to as Devil's Slide. It was over uh, a ridge. And um, because there was 
it was kind of a, a drainage and there was erosion there and it was big enough for people to sort of slip down there. But it was called Devil's Slide because if you actually slipped or you went too far, you're going to fall off the edge of the ridge. That wouldn't be a good thing. Um, but as young people, we'd like to try and, you know, test those boundaries. And um, that was the place that I'd go to when I was in college. And I just needed to decompress. I needed to get away. And I'd go there sometimes with friends, but most of the time I'd just go alone and just sit and look over the cornfields. And the wind would blow over the cornfields. And um, folks back in Seattle made fun of me because I told them that watching the wind blow over the corn was like watching the ocean. And they thought I was really provincial. <laughs> I, I was going to use a different P word. I was going to go with poetry. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more appropriate. Yeah, I'll have to go back and whenever they they say that about me, I'll tell them it's more poetic. Um, get with it. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, and then, and then even after college, um, once I finally graduated from college, which took a little bit wa- longer um, than four years, I ended up moving to Seattle. And um, I started working then with a touring arts performance group. Uh, we traveled on the road in a 40-foot Eagle coach uh, about five to eight months out of every year. And driving across the country is not environmentally sensitive. However, it's a great way to see the land. And um, I've seen the entire country. And over the course of the almost 10 years that I was traveling consistently across the country, actually spending more time on the road than I spent in Seattle, I just became more and more odd and in love with the land in our country. And uh, we would, in between gigs, You know, we would pull off into some park grounds or we'd visit the national parks or, you know, just a lot of living in the outdoors. That was, I think, the point in my life that I actually became consciously aware of the profound love that I have for the natural world. Um, I've had a number of different careers in my in my lifetime, from the performing arts to higher education, nonprofit management, and really just recently in my career have I transitioned to these executive director roles in organizations that are focused on uh, land restoration or environmental education. But I just feel like uh, it's, it's been a part of my life's journey. And although it is not something that I could have foreseen, in my life, because of my journey, I feel that I have been completely prepared for this role. Has the world been prepared for you? Because let's talk about some obvious stereotypes. Um, You're an African-American woman in a leadership role in an ecological-based environment. And I think the data is pretty clear that minorities don't frequent national parks as much as um, the, you know, the white majority does. Um, so there are all sorts of other aspects to this. I wonder if you would just speak a little bit to this maybe having been your journey, but I wonder if the world was quite ready for you. I think the world is ready for me. Um, I do. I don't feel that I would have been selected for this role if 
if the world, if Omaha, if Fontenelle Forest wasn't ready for me. That being the case, I do think that it just me being the person that I am with the cultural and social experience that I have as a woman and as a person of color makes my leadership, makes the leadership that I bring and the perspective that I bring to an organization like Fontenelle Forest different. And I think that's really valuable because... As you mentioned, um, the National Park System, uh, the National Audubon Society, Nature Conservancy, these very large organizations that share an affinity for the values and the mission that Fontenelle Forests have recognize the importance of engaging and including a more diverse community in the work that these organizations are going to do. It's really about environmental justice. It's about environmental impact. It's about mission impact. A lot of people in our field like to say that the work we're doing is work that's meant to change the world. And so I think a very important question we have to ask ourselves, especially when it comes to the demographic makeup of our staff, of our membership, and our visitorship, How are we actually going to change the world when the majority of the world is excluded? And so I really see my role and the invitation to take on this important role at Fontenelle Forest as a statement, a very clear statement by our board that we do want to include our entire community. We do understand that all of our community needs to be engaged for, in order for our organization to fully realize our mission. You also mentioned that you're from a, a hunting family. And I, again, just want to add that to the, the list of stereotype defying perceptions that you bring to this role. And I, guess I, in- I don't think that's a, I don't think that's really stereotype defying, really. I think that... Um, I think it's really important for us to keep in mind that our personal experience provides us with a very specific lens, a different, a very specific way of seeing the world. I, I, the story, the parable or of, of folks all standing around an elephant, blind men standing around an elephant, and they're putting their hands on the elephant and describing the elephant, but all they really understand is where their hands are. They don't understand the entire elephant. And I think that when we talk about cultural perceptions of people's relationship to nature, I think we're very similar to the blind people standing around the elephant. Um, You know, my family came to the state of Nebraska and they were farmers. Um, A lot of people that came to any part of the north from the south, their families generally are coming from rural environments. Uh, My family came to Nebraska right after the Civil War. And uh, my great-great-grandparents had been slaves. Um, And so there's a real strong connection to nature (laughs) when you're a farmer. And when you're living in a shack in a small town, um, which, you know, 
My father is from rural Arkansas, and many of the members of my family still live in very rural environments. That is the reality of the black community. It's the reality of many people in immigrant communities coming to the United States, um, whether it's from, you know, uh, from, from Eastern or Western Africa, from Mexico, from South America, or the Caribbean. People do have a strong relationship and live closely in relationship with the land. Um, a lot of people don't have nice grocery stores to go buy their food, and they do hunt for their food, and they do fish. Again, our cultural lens is, as Americans, and I'm very much of an American, is based on the life that we have created for ourselves. Um, buildings and jobs and transportation and all kinds of amenities that don't require us to go out and hunt for our food. They don't require us to go out and fish for our food. Um, we depend on other people for that. That's how our society is built. And so... When we think about diverse communities not having a relationship with nature, we're applying our lens. And we have to be very, very thoughtful about that um, because it can unintentionally undermine our wishes and our aspirations for including others and including diversity. I wonder if the urban environment or man-made environments inherently because they're man-made, tend to support and buttress some of these lenses that you were just uh, referencing, whereas the natural world resists in some way. It helps us to resist these man-made perspectives. And so in that sense, the natural environment is this sort of antidote to the strictures and the artificial perspectives that, that we as, as people place on the world and each other. Well... I'm going to resist the <laughs> I'm going to resist the temptation to get too philosophical here because <laughs> this show will never end. <laughs> but um, I would I think that I would tend to agree with what you're saying. Um, I guess the philosophical piece of that is that as human beings, um, regardless of where we live, there's always going to be some human, you know, interjection of our our will, you know, and the way we relate to one another and the way we relate to nature. I mean, you just think about where different people live and what they think is appropriate to eat and what they think is inappropriate to eat. We're here in the Midwest and we eat a lot of corn and in the other countries they think that corn is for animals and people shouldn't be eating that. Um, so there's always going to be that. I, I used to tell people when I was living out on the West Coast, um, what I really love about the Midwest and what I really love about Midwest people is that we're honest and authentic and that we help one another. And my reasoning for that is because in the summer, it's so hot that you could die. <laughs> and in the winter, it's so cold that you can die. And when you live in a place where life is dependent upon cooperation and support of one another for mere survival, it's a different dynamic. 
And so when we live in an urban environment in our places, we can stay in our home, we can stay in our place of work, we can stay in our neighborhood. Um, in some ways, it it pulls away from that broader community. Um, and those kinds of barriers, I think, are taken away when people go into um into the natural world when they experience a place like Fontenelle Forest, a urban nature center. Um, but we still all carry our own baggage and that's okay. I've got baggage too from the from the musical rent. I'm just looking for someone who's got baggage that works with mine. <laughs> <laughs> Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes. Five hundred twenty-five thousand moments so dear. Five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes. How do you measure, measure a year in daylight, in sunsets? Well, actually, that gives me a great segue into that. <laughs> In, into I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Bakrabata. Yeah, Bakrabata. Bakrabata, thank you. So Bakrabata, a Seattle-based performing arts group, and you mentioned that just a little bit ago as you talked about experiencing all of America, uh, traveling around the country. Tell us more about that particular group. So Bakrabata is an ensemble that uh, really fluctuates anywhere from eight people to over twenty people. Um, it is a steel drum percu and percussion ensemble that also um, provides um, or performs music and a masquerade and has traveled all over the United States, really, and internationally, primarily performing at, you know, theaters, at colleges and universities, at art and musical f music festivals. Um, they're... Their genre really is broad. Um, the band is a representation of, tries to represent the versatility of the steel drum. We are talking a little bit about cultural perspectives. When people see a steel drum, or it's also called pan, they think specifically about Caribbean music. And you can, with a full set of steel drums, um, you can play anything on the steel drum that you could play on a piano. It's an incredibly versatile instrument. And so we played jazz, we played classical music, we played Christmas music. Yes, we played Calypso, not so much Jimmy Buffett stuff. Primarily, um, we wanted to highlight the adaptation and the versatility and the integration of Afro-rooted culture into and as a part of American culture, the dance that we performed was very diverse also from modern dance, but primarily focusing on folkloric and traditional dances from the African diaspora. It was really fun, really exciting. We had an opening at Fontenelle Forest for our new exhibit that opened up in July 2016, Raptor Woodland Refuge. Uh, a member of the community approached me and she reached into her purse <laughs> And she pulled out a Bakra Bata CD. <laughs> Bakra 
I don't know if you're the genealogist or if this is something that was passed down in your family. So let me ask that first. Are you a genealogist? I'm not a genealogist. I love to learn. I became interested in my family's history when I was in undergrad and really only um, in the past, I guess, five years or so, have found time to do more research. And, and I have to say, with the uh, you know, development of technology, the Internet and Google, it's really amazing. You can find so much information. And so I just happened to sign up for Ancestry.com and started building things, started, you know, researching on the Internet. And I actually learned most about my family from research that other people in my family who I had no idea that I was related to um, had already published online. And one of those individuals um, is a woman who, when we were kids, she actually lived up the street from me here in Omaha. And uh, we would play. She's a couple years younger than me, and we would play and hang out. And she ended up moving to Missouri. And in the course of doing her family research, she came upon my name and, and said, oh my gosh, I remember that Whitehall kid that I used to play with. And through Facebook, she found me and we started sharing information. And so I had, um, you know, learned a lot and the information that she had researched, I would call her a genealogist, um, not me. Uh, I just accumulate other people's wisdom. That's what I do. <laughs> there seems to be some of what you've talked about so far. There seems to be these um, these occurrences, these happenings, these moments where history seems to reconnect into your life. And I'm wondering if in this research about your family, if you're seeing connections that go much further back that maybe have influenced your life so far. Um, I, I think that my life is... Uh it goes in a lot of circles. I've seen a lot of circles. It's not one circle. There are a lot. So I'm, I'm not constantly covering the same ground, thank goodness. Um, but I see a lot, of, um, a lot of patterns completed, I would say, in my life. And that's one of the beautiful things about living, seeing that, you know, uh, when you're in the moment. Sometimes you have no idea what's going on. You don't understand. But then, you know, if you just kind of hang on... Um, eventually you can gain that kind of understanding. I think that one of the most interesting things that I learned about my family was um, really how we came to Nebraska in the first place. <laughs> this is the short version. <laughs> <laughs> so the majority of African slaves that um, were brought to Curatuck County, North Carolina came from the Bahamas. Um, my great-great-great-grandfather, all I know is his first initial J and his last name Whitehall. If you're out there and you're researching J. Whitehall from Curatuck County, North Carolina, 1791 was the year that he was born, please call me up and give me some information. <laughs> That's another way the circles are completed. But um, So he was owned by a particular family. The name of that family escapes me at this moment, but... Uh, there was a tragedy in his family. The husband passed away. And, you know, in that day, women were not allowed to own property. And slaves were considered property at that time. And so all of the land holdings, all the property holdings, um, were put in trust for this family, for this widower and her children. Um, and the trustee was a good friend 
of the gentleman who had passed away. Not that good a friend, though, because he ended up selling a lot of the property and skipping town with the money that he gained from that property, along with my great-great-grandfather and my great-great-great-grandfather, um, and leaving the widow and her children high and dry. He moved to Missouri and founded a town in Lancaster County, Missouri. Many years later, the children found him, and they filed suit against him. And this is all documented in a Supreme Court case, which is how I learned about it. Um, but that's how my family ended up in Missouri from North Carolina. After the Civil War, my great-great-grandfather received a pension and uh, with his pension, moved to Nebraska, moved to Schuyler, Nebraska, which is where my family, where my great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandparents are buried right now. And um, I believe that we came to Nebraska because the commanding lieutenant of that infantry, the 62nd U.S. Colored Infantry, was a gentleman by the name of Richard Baxter Foster. He was a graduate of Dartmouth University. He was an educator, a carpenter, and an abolitionist. And so my imagination, this is where imagination comes in. I imagine them sitting around in the down times of, you know, between battles and moving from one place to the next and talking about, you know, issues and places and life experiences. And I think that's where my great-great-grandfather may have learned first about Nebraska, about this great place where people could be free. And so after the Civil War, you know, they ended up moving to Nebraska because Richard Baxter Foster had been a carpenter and a teacher here in the state of Nebraska. And um, so I think that's how we ended up in this place. I might be wrong, <laughs> but that's what I think. <laughs> I like the imagined version. Yeah. Well, researching your family, there's there's a little bit of imagination that has to come into filling in some of those blanks, you know, until you actually can find that information. The, the ideas help you, give you um, inspiration for directions to search for more information. I almost feel as if you didn't have any choice but to return to Omaha. I feel that way, too. And by that, I don't mean a choice of will. I certainly had the will to um, choose to be here or not. But I, I really feel as though I was called back to this place for some reason. And like all those circles in my life, I'm in the moment and I can't see the big picture. But I do think that there's an important reason to be here. And I'm honored, I'm humbled, and I am fully engaged and invested in fulfilling whatever that purpose ends up to be.
won't shut up And most of all I will not grow up I won't sit down And I won't shut up And most of all yeah, I won't grow up All maturities are You went to study law, but, yes. then, but then you didn't. So yeah. what, what's the short story of that? that? The short story of that, it's actually shorter than the story of how we got to Nebraska. <laughs> I am the first person in my family to graduate from college. And my parents love me, but they did not have the experience to guide me through my academic journey. And, um, you know, honestly, growing up in North O, um, during the time that I was growing up, it was not the lives and the destiny of a lot of kids that I grew up with didn't turn out to be as fortunate as my own. And so I didn't get in trouble. And that was really important to my family. And so even though I was getting C's in high school, you know, I wasn't in trouble and they were really happy. Well, I went to a great high school. I graduated from Burke High School and um, I had a great education and a, a great exposure to a different peer group um, at Burke High School in West Omaha. When I got to 11th grade, everybody was applying to college. And so I just figured that's what I was supposed to do, too. So I applied to one, <laughs> just one. It was UNO, and thank God I got accepted and um, with my C average. And it uh, took me about six years to graduate because I changed my major like a dozen times or so. And I ended up graduating with a degree in political science because the political science faculty members were amazing. My, my favoritest professor of all time, even today, is Professor Meredith Bacon. And... Um, just really, Professor Bacon helped me understand that the brain in my head actually worked very well. Not just worked, but it worked very well. I, I understood that I was actually a smart person because of the way I was instructed um, and the confidence that Professor Bacon um, instilled in me from the front of the class. So when we get to graduation, everybody with a political science degree is applying to law school. And again, I had no one to give me guidance as to what direction to take. And law school sounded pretty good. So I decided to apply and I got accepted. I got accepted for law schools, actually. And uh, I ended up going to University of Pittsburgh. Uh, that's when I found out that I was going to be a mother. And I decided that I was going to withdraw, come back to Omaha, and because 
this pregnancy might be the only pregnancy that I have and the only child that I ever have. And it does turn out, in fact, that I only have one child. Um, so that was a, a good decision for me. But while I was back here in Omaha, I'm not a quitter. And so I thought, I'm just going to go ahead and reapply to law school. And I was accepted to Creighton University Law School. My daughter was three months old when I went back to school and I was living on my own as a single parent. And it was really too much to take on at that time. Um, I cried every single day and I hated it and it wasn't right for me. And I realized also that it wasn't really just about a career, it was about a lifestyle. And at that point, I realized that the most important thing for me to be was a mother. So after a year at Creighton, I withdrew and I moved to Seattle and became a performing artist and traveled the country five to eight months out of the year. And my daughter was with me the entire time. Um, when we were on the road, I would pull her out of school and I would homeschool her. And uh, she just graduated from university last year in December, double major in four years, a pre-med tracked uh, exercise science degree and a business degree. And uh, she just got her first full-time job as a manager at a national gym no, today. So. No hint of pride. In, in no end of pride, uh, yeah. So tell me then about your upbringing so that we can maybe understand how that juxtaposes with the landscape now that your life is surrounded in. It's really interesting being back in the particular role that I'm in now. Um, I feel like my engagement in the community and my awareness of the place that I live is very different. My experience now as an Omahaan is very different than the experience that preceded my move to Seattle, Washington. Um, I was a kid from North Omaha. I still am. I'm still a kid from North Omaha. In fact, I, I live two doors down from where I grew up. I feel as though I've come back to, in some ways, a different place than I left. And I'm also a different person than when I left. It's kind of perplexing and interesting at the same time, this experience I'm having, um, but it's, it's wonderful. What has surprised you being back in Omaha, given that you have history uh, here and a long family history in the state? I think to some degree, although over the years I've traveled back often to spend time with my family, um, I was not engaged in the community during those visits back to Omaha while I was living out West. And so coming back, um, I think that I was expecting to experience the city that I left 20 years ago. And Omaha is a very different city. There are so many tremendous efforts um, at play and at work in our community right now. There is so much energy. I feel as though Omaha is approaching a tipping point, really, um, of, of progress and, you know, improvement and um, just strengthening and building our community and our future as a community. And I think that is one of 
really one of the most exciting parts about being back um, is being able to be a part of that and to contribute to that and, and to bring back all of my learning and growth from both my successes and my mistakes and to contribute as a leader in this community. That's super exciting. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Marisa Whitehall, Executive Director of Fontenelle Forest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. You are a stilt walker. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why and how? What do stilt walkers do? Well, okay, so so I'm actually a stilt dancer. There's a difference. Stilt walkers, they walk on the stilts. I dance on the stilts. So this just and... goes doubly hard, okay? <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.